Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to the What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Michael Barbato about his extensive experience as a palliative care physician here in Australia. Michael's knowledge, understanding and insight into this important field of care provides both a personal and professional perspective of the many dimensions to the art of providing palliative care and to experiencing the kinder side to a palliative life and death. So in today's episode of What About Death, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Barbato, who has been a medical doctor for 55 years and also a palliative care physician for over 30 years. Michael is also the author of three books, has a great interest in the environment and, of course, physical health. And uh, it's really a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Sultra. All right. So what is your first experience, recollection, memory of death? I'm probably cheating with the example that I give because it was not uh, my experience with death. It was a near-death experience. In fact, one that I had around the age of seven And the reason I would prefer to use that rather than any other examples is firstly the experience of having that uh, near-death experience, but it also has been a major factor in my interest in, in, I suppose I'd say, unconsciousness, even though that's a word I would prefer not to use. So what happened at the age of seven I was happily playing in a creek or a lagoon with my twin sister and I was unable to swim at that time, but I had a fairly large rubber ball uh, that I sort of had my hands around and was just kicking around. But unbeknown to me, I'd got way out of my depth and the rubber ball at some point just popped out of my arms and as it went up, I went down. And I still, even to this day, can vividly remember the struggle, the terror, the fear, the uncertainty. But that lasted just a split second because immediately I was fully and totally out of my body. I would have been oh, 10, 20 metres above the water line. I could see everything below me, people on the beach. I had no awareness of my body, nor could I see it, struggling and thrashing around, which I imagined was what it was doing. I was 
just totally removed from the scene. And I was really caught up by a sense of being connected with everything and an enormous sense of peace around me, which obviously would have contrasted to what my body was going through at the time. Now, I have no idea how long that lasts because I was just totally consumed by the sense of oneness and beauty. And that went on for some unknown period. But my next uh, memory was when I was brought out of this out-of-body experience and what brought me out of it was my mother's voice because I was now laying on the bed in our caravan. We This was a caravan holiday and caravan was right by the water. So the only thing I remember is waking up to my mother's voice and whether it's real or not, I just have a memory of her castigating me for causing everyone such distress. So I must have been unresponsive or unconscious for a good quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, because from the time they must have rescued me and brought me back, I really didn't waken until, as I said, I was in that bed in the caravan. But that was an overwhelmingly unbelievable experience. And it, I've regularly in my conversations with people, not necessarily people who are dying, but those who are working in the field of death and dying, that I strongly believe there is what I call a kinder side to dying. And that kinder side of dying are the experiences that frequently come to rescue people when they're confronted with the reality of death. And it includes things like near-death experiences, end-of-life dreams and visions, lucid moments, and various things like that. Thank you for that. I'd, um, I'd love to talk to you in the future about this specifically, but, um, but today we're talking about a different topic. <laughs> sure. Thank you very much for sharing that. So you've been a medical doctor for 55 years. How did your career in medicine evolve into working in palliative care? When I trained, there was no such thing as a family medicine program, a program designed specifically to train doctors who hoped to go into palliative care. So I did a specialist degree in medicine, became a physician, but always with the intention of going into general practice. And I did. So after all the necessary hospital training, plus the specialist exam, Anne and I, Anne being my wife, and our one child, we moved up to Lismore, where I started in general practice, and from there moved to Armidale, New South Wales, and went into consulting practice and was there for about eight, 17 to 18 years. Being the only consultant physician in Armidale at the time, and many of the people that were sent to me were people who were, in fact, uh, nearing the end of life. So I did my, my very best to give them the best quality of life, but invariably became the doctor that cared for them at the end of life. So it was that regular confrontation with death that had me perhaps interested in, in death and dying in a way that I hadn't quite appreciated until death came knocking on our door. Our youngest daughter at the time, uh, Moira, who was only four weeks old, died of a cot death. 
that had a profound effect on Anne and I and our children. That was when I really saw death at close range and the effect it has on people. And what shocked me is how different that effect was on me compared to when people who I'd got to know quite well died. I grieved their loss and felt extraordinary sadness for them and their family. But the experience of Moira dying just showed me how different it is when it's someone so close to you that is dying. But it also made me realise perhaps how poorly I cared for perhaps people who are dying. And I say poorly, that's probably not a good use of the word because I certainly gave them the best of care and attention. But I realised that there's so much more to caring for people who are dying and that care needs to go beyond just the person that's dying but the whole family. So it's that experience of grief that came after Moira's death that highlighted the other aspect of dying, that is, the care of people who are left to grieve. So that, and very soon after Moira died, Anne's father became terminally ill with cancer of the prostate and he lived alone. So we moved him in with us and we cared for him for the last two months of his life and saw how big a job and how testing a job that is both physically, emotionally and spiritually. So again, another aspect of death and dying that I hadn't quite appreciated. And I think it was the combination of those three things, my work as a doctor caring for people who are dying, the profound experience of having our daughter die suddenly of cot death, and then caring for Anne's father, my father-in-law, as he was dying, that made me see how much could be done and needed to be done. Perhaps I should stress the needed to be done for people who are dying and their families. And so I became interested in palliative care, even though I knew little about it. But serendipitously at that time, after all these events had passed, in the Medical Journal of Australia, they started advertising positions in palliative medicine. And I immediately knew without even thinking about it, that that's the career I wished to move into. So in 1989, we all moved to Sydney and I commenced my palliative medicine career at the Sacred Heart Hospice in Darlinghurst. So can you explain what palliative care actually means? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's an ever-evolving answer to that. And the answer I would give would depend on who asked the question. For this audience, I would say palliative care, and I stress palliative care rather than palliative medicine because there, there is quite a distinction between palliative medicine, which is more the science of caring for people who are dying, whereas palliative care is the art of caring for people who are dying. Both are absolutely essential in the delivery of good first-class palliative care. If I had to give a brief definition of palliative care, it's the care, the total care of the whole person, the person that's dying, but not at the exclusion of their family and perhaps intimate friends. And by the total care or the holistic care, that means care of physical symptoms, 
their mental health, their spiritual health, their emotional health, their social health. So all those dimensions become very important in caring for someone who's dying. And it varies from one person to another. One person, it might be these physical symptoms that are overwhelming and their quality of life depends very much on getting those symptoms under control. Whereas for others, it's their emotional and social well-being. So what we aim to do is to to do whatever we can or whatever's possible to improve the quality of that life, the quality of the life of that person. The focus is not on their length of life, although there is good evidence that with good palliative care, the length of life may actually be longer than would otherwise be expected. But essentially, it's quality of life, their way of living, their way of life, trying to improve that, while at the same time paying attention to their physical symptoms, their emotional well-being, and the language of their soul, which will regularly and frequently come up in conversation, but is sometimes overlooked if we're not careful, because we could be consumed by matters that we consider important, but perhaps are not quite as important for the person themselves who is dying. So having had um, so many decades of experience in medicine, what influence do you think that modern medicine and hospitalisation has had on how the dying are treated, whether that's from a clinical perspective or from a social perspective? Look, I believe everyone does their best when they're involved in the care of people who are dying. I think there is a lot to be learned about the art of caring for people who are dying. And I believe aged care and palliative care are probably the leaders in that field because they're more comfortable with the the delivery of quality palliative care. Because what I think is so important in palliative care is not so much what we do for them, but how present we are to them. The art of care, not so much the art, but the care of people who are dying, if we're not very careful, can be dominated by what can we do for them. And while that's very important, it seems to me and from my experience, what becomes gradually more important is just the very presence of being there with them, allowing them the space to talk about what concerns them if that's what they so wish. Corey Taylor, who I think was a Queenslander who wrote the book Dying a Memoir, highlights what she calls the loneliness of dying. And that loneliness is not so much related to the absence of friends and family, their physical presence, but the loneliness of not being able to share that which troubles them most, which is quite often emotional, mental or a spiritual issue or an existential issue. And I sense the message she's giving is that people themselves are so uncomfortable that those questions that those questions may come up, they do everything unconsciously to try and avoid it. And one way we can do that. And I say this respectfully because people who do it are not doing it as a conscious thing. It's unconscious. But we do it by busying ourselves. And I think coming back to your question, 
I think the medicine tends to busy itself around death and dying, so much so that the issues that perhaps bother the patient most very rarely get an opportunity to be aired because the focus can be very much on the physical. I mean, when I say physical, I mean the disease itself, the treatment of the underlying disease and the treatment of symptoms that go with that disease. Having someone who can just sit by the bedside and listen to someone who, I use the word dying, but we need to keep reminding ourselves that these people are living and every moment of their life is invaluable because it's clearly in short supply. So they want to make the best of of every moment. And sometimes they would want to talk about things that joyful and happy, but at other times they can very suddenly lapse into things that are quite painful. And the art of being with people who are dying is to be able to accommodate those shifts in people's demeanour, to recognise it and make space for them so they can talk about it. It's harder to do in hospital because hospitals have been likened to a busy airport. Things are happening around you and beside you and there's so many so much action. That space people need to feel safe in in opening up about things that may concern them is not often found in a busy hospital or in an emergency department. And it's more likely to happen in a palliative care unit, aged care facility. But the last thing I want to say about that, I believe people who enter into the field of palliative care, whether that be as a volunteer or as a specialist doctor, but it includes all the people who are involved in palliative care and in aged care. My belief is that those people are very much working on themselves too. In other words, they're looking inside what and become very aware of what they're uncomfortable with when it comes to death and dying their fears around death and dying, and so they're on their own spiritual journey. And I think it's so important when we're working with people who are dying and their families for us to be not only listening to them but also listening to what is going on inside of us because if we don't, we unconsciously and unknowingly steer the conversation around two areas that we're more comfortable with rather than feeling comfortable and safe and sitting with people as they open to their own grief. So working on oneself, I think, is something that tends to be more seen more commonly in those who are working specifically with people at the end of life rather than with those whose prime job admittedly working in hospitals, is to keep people alive. real shift that's required and that's not easy because the means of a general or an acute care hospital is one of keeping people alive. I'm sort of wondering whether or not because we have such a you know, in a general sense, a greater extent of life expectancy, medicine and technology in medicine and uh, the treatment of illness has improved so much over the, the last several decades. And I'm just wondering whether or not in your observation and your experience, there's been a tendency to maybe 
pathologize dying and death rather than seeing it as a very natural experience. What's your thoughts on that? Yes, I think there's a variable degree of pathologizing and it varies from one individual to another, one specialty to another. I'm thinking if one of my family became sick, what I would want is the best medical care possible and that may, in fact, involve looking at the pathology and what can be done about it. Mm. So that's one aspect of what I would look in, uh, look to in the people who would be caring for someone I'd love. But what I also want is someone who can be very honest and say, look, these are the options and this is where I think we stand in relationship to what's going on with you. I think it's very hard for doctors to acknowledge that a shift in the care of their patient has come from one where you can actually treat a disease with a view to cure to one where the treatment focuses more on quality of life rather than prolonging life. I, can't, I don't want to speak for individual doctors, but I think medicine as a whole is learning uh, very quickly that there comes a point in the care of anyone when we have to be upfront with what's going on and that a shift in the direction of care may need to take place sooner rather than later. My main concern is not so much how medicine is pathologizing health and well-being and looking to alter the course of the pathology as a way of dealing with whatever the problem is. But my concern is very much of how this has all played out in the media and how social media gives people false hopes and gets them to chase treatments which in fact are unproven and probably harmful rather than helpful. And that not only is not beneficial, meaning it's very unlikely and and extremely rarely that whatever's suggested, certainly in the media, is going to be helpful. But it often takes valuable time away from people who are dying. And when they come to realise that any of these treatments have failed, they're almost too weak and too unwell to deal with some of the bigger issues that confront them. They're the emotional, social and spiritual aspects of dying. So then what do you think could be improved, I guess, in how the dying are cared for, whether that's at home, in hospital, in aged care facilities? What sort of practical things do you think that we could do today to improve, you know, the palliative lives of people? I think the important thing I'd say just as an introduction to that question is role modelling how to care for people who are dying is so important. You know, I've been fortunate in my medical career, particularly in my palliative care career, to have some people who had been in palliative care for some years before I joined who role modelled to me how best you care for people who are dying. And I think if we had those role models in acute care hospitals, that would do um, wonders for the overall care of people who are dying because those people would then influence the most junior doctors who are the ones who are called upon to deliver 
care to people who are dying. In other words, they act on the instructions of the senior doctor, but they're the ones at the bedside. And if they've had a clinician who's role model to them, the art of being with people who are dying, the importance of listening to them, delivering the best quality of care, but always being sensitive to the needs of the person in the bed rather than to our own needs, that would make a big difference. When it comes to delivery of palliative care, I try and break it down because it can be somewhat overwhelming when you think about the needs of people who are dying. And again, coming back to the point, their needs are very much trying to give them the best quality of life. So I think it's so important for people who come under the palliative care umbrella, and that includes those in aged care and people with dementia, is first and foremost to make sure their body is comfortable. Because if someone has a life-limiting illness and they're burdened with physical symptoms, whether it be pain, nausea, vomiting, breathlessness, that undermines their quality of life. And while they've got those symptoms, they're unable and certainly incapable of talking about some of the bigger issues, like I said, emotional, spiritual, existential. So to have a team of people that firstly can ensure the physical comfort as best they can of the person who's got that life-limiting illness, and then having achieve the best comfort one could hope for in that situation. To try and elucidate um, from the the person concerned and their family, what is important for them? Atal Gawande, in his book, uh, has this question, and basically the question is, what do I need to know about you that will help me deliver the type of care that you want? So basically, you're asking people to talk about what's important, not only in their dying, but what's important in their life. And that helps us with regards to the type of care, where they want to be cared for, what their priorities are, whether for them it's to ensure at all costs that they're pain-free, whereas for others, it may be they're quite prepared to suffer a certain amount of pain because what they value more is to be as alert as possible until the moment of death or sometime before that. So finding out what they want in their dying, where they want to die, their place of dying, their preferred carers, how many visitors they want and all these type of things. Um, So being able to open up those conversations with people and allowing them to determine what for them would be the best place to spend their remaining days, how best to care for them in their remaining days and who they wish to see and have visit them in their remaining days. And it seems that palliative care is not well understood. So what do you think uh, can be done to enhance people's understanding of dying and death and to reduce the fear and discomfort that often surrounds uh, death and dying? I suppose just taking it from my point of entry into someone's life as a palliative care doctor, I'm always interested in 
if someone has been referred to palliative care, my first visit is to elicit from them what their understanding of palliative care is. Because sadly, quite often people are referred to palliative care on the basis or it's been said there's nothing more that can be done. And that's a frightening thing for people who have got a life-limiting illness to hear. But if palliative care has been introduced by someone in a very positive way, then the attitude of the person dying in their families will get a difference. So I like to hear what people's understanding of palliative care is. It often comes around to talking about its quality of life rather than length of life, aim to make their body as comfortable enough place to live in so as they get, they can lead the best quality of life or get the best out of the remaining days, weeks, months they have left. I will talk about how we aim to keep them comfortable but if there are any other issues they really wish to talk about that, we're really open to hear about that. I will then try and undo some of the myths around palliative care. Death is a natural thing and all we do is aim to keep them comfortable while death, their dying, follows its own natural course. From that point, the whole idea of that is not only to be upfront about what palliative care is and some of the things we do, particularly the drugs we use, and to, to dispel some of the myths, but not to glamorise palliative care. I'm concerned about how the community, people who have not had contact with palliative care, how they see palliative care, and, and unfortunately the way a lot of people perceive palliative care some of it see that we almost deliberately shorten life, and so mm -hmm. I get great lengths to try and dispel that myth. And I become increasingly aware that people uh, have doubts about the ability of palliative care to deliver the type of services that they talk about, and that lack of faith comes not so much from contemporary first-hand experience, in other words, palliative care as it's delivered today, but how they saw their parents and grandparents died and their fear around suffering. Because when I think of my grandparents dying, one of them had cancer and she had terrible pain. But I'm going back to pre-palliative care days, their fear of death and their fear of dying. And it's based on what, how they saw their grandparents and sometimes their parents die in mm. pain. And they believe that even with good palliative care, that's what awaits them because that's been their experience. So I think we have a lot to do in talking about the value of palliative care, dispelling the myths around palliative care, enabling people to talk about their experience of seeing people who have died and allowing them to talk about it. When it comes to the fear of people who are dying to talk about their fear or even the family of the person that's dying, I always have to remind myself, apart from creating a what I call a healing space and a healing environment, in other words, having them cared for in the place they want to be cared for. 
I'm aware that I can't fix their fear. The best I can do, and when I say the best, that's not putting it down, is to hear their fear, allow them to talk about their fear. Because my experience is that um, even the bravest, strongest physical specimen is absolutely petrified about what death may entail. So allowing them to talk about what their fears are, listening to them, and if I am able to dispel some of the fears and perhaps myths around death and dying to do that, because it's the fear of the unknown, which I think is the biggest source of angst with people who are dying in their family. Mm. And the more they're able to talk about that, um, I won't say it gets rid of the fear, but it certainly goes a long way to helping them overcome some of the concerns and and fears they have about what death may mean to them. So then uh, finally, I'd just like to talk to you about, you, you know, you've had very lengthy experience of working with people who are dying. And how has that changed your own view of death? And I guess particularly in terms of your own sense of mortality. It's my near-death experience, which has helped me most um, around death and dying, my own death and dying. And that's why I strongly believe there is a kind of side to die. I would certainly fear physical suffering, so I would want the best palliative care possible at the time. I hope my death is not sudden, but because I know it could be, I make preparations for my death, both in a practical sense but also emotionally as best one can by ensuring that our children know how much they're loved and how much their life has meant to us, and it's nice to hear that in return. By living my life to the fullest, because my experience has been one of the biggest or the commonest things people bring up when they're dying is their regrets in life, the things they've done or haven't done. So to deal with things that may be outstanding and which can be done and those that can't be retrieved come finding some sense of peace around it by talking to some appropriate person. So for me, it's understanding that death is not the end of life, it's part of life. Mm. And it's so important to prepare for one's death and the way one does that is by living one's life to the fullest, doing the things you wish to do rather than at a time that's appropriate for you, for you and not putting them off until it's too late. If there are regrets that can be undone to do that, if there have been estrangements in the family to try and bring peace around that, and if that doesn't involve bringing bodies back together and talking, at least to find some sense of peace in one's heart about that. And that often means forgiving oneself as well as forgiving another I'm not ready to die, but if it happens, I'll see it as, as a natural part of my life. And for me, I talked about role modelling earlier on. Our last, we talk about stages of life. The last, what I consider to be the most important stage I'm yet to come in my life is that of dying. And what we do with dying 
is to role model to our children and the next generation about how a person can die well. So I hope in all my hearts that um, I can die a type of death which will show to my family and friends that as sad as it may be in the grief that goes with it, one can die a death that meets with one's way of thinking, one's way of life, and which honours the person concerned, the person that has died. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end uh, our interview today. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. And I very much look forward to um, talking with you again further about uh, this uh, other subject of of near-death experience. So thank you so much again for sharing your insights and your experience today. Thank you, Saltram. It's been a pleasure and an honour. All the best. In the next episode of What About Death, I speak with Annie Whitlock, who explains her role as a death doula and why she believes speaking openly and honestly about dying and death early can bring a peace of mind both during life and as the end of life draws near. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to the What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.